Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, is the government about to sell off Channel 4? Does the BBC have an Oxbridge problem? And can the lure of Andrew Neil bring viewers from Sky to GB News? Plus, we explore the link between local newspaper circulation and voter turnout, and the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, who've turned down the chance to play the Media Podcast quiz, have signed to Netflix. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And joining me for today's show, co-host of the Fortunately podcast and Woman's Hour, but not for much longer, Jane Garvey. Hi, Jane. Hello. Soon to be a free woman. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, reportedly, you decided to leave Woman's Hour before Jenny announced her retirement. Is that true? And did her stepping down cause you any change of heart, if so? Uh... Okay, two questions. First one, I honestly can't remember. You know how what a strange year this has been? I can't remember what happened first. Even have... in the world of BBC politics, there are more important things going on in the world. What? There are no there are, well, not nothing more important than a changing uh rotor at Woman's Hour, surely. Um <laughs> uh no, I honestly um can't remember whether I got in first. But anyway, I'm really glad I did it. Not because I won't miss the program a lot, because I will, but because, you know, you can do things a bit too long. And um, and I think it's t- it's time, and I'm sure um, I'm sure many of the audience agree. In fact, they do because they've told me. So that's fine. What um, would you like to happen t- with the program then? I mean, Emma Barnett's. Well, actually, it's, I in. mean, yeah, it's well, she's not. I mean, she's uh, it's going to be uh, Emma Barnett four days a week, and then uh, which I think is great. I think it gives the program a whole new energy, um, not necessarily a different direction, but just, and also frankly, a different generation at the helm of it, um, looking at things from a different perspective. Um, and it's it's great. And it's a real lease of life for Radio 4, which a new lease of life for Radio 4, which at times, can we be honest, is, is um, I mean, there are, I'm going to be very careful here, but there are certain programs on Radio 4 that have been helmed by the same people for many, mm. many years, many, many years. And maybe maybe I've set a pattern for people realising that, hey, you can just shove off. Well, shove um, off, but onto your own new Radio 4 show, which all right. we know is what was in the press release. So 9am yes. and you're interviewing interesting people. That's it. it. Can you give us well, any steer? Well, I wanted to interview uninteresting people at 9 o'clock. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that would be a really bold concept. Um 
You probably know as much as I do about that. <laughs> well, it sounds fascinating. It I mean, does, I'm tuning in. Yeah. I mean, let's give interesting people a chance on the radio. <laughs> you know, it's a hell of a good idea. I think it's probably the controller's idea. So I think it's brilliant. Absolutely but, brilliant. Yeah. But really, at this stage, you don't know whether they are, if you like, ordinary people, in quotation marks. Or whether there's no such thing. If I've learned anything, Ollie, on my time on Woman's Air, there's no such thing as an ordinary person. Oh, no. Truly, I don't really know. Um, unfortunately, he's going on the radio, which is also great and which I am looking forward to. Um, but you'll still be that... just as rude, right? That's important to your listeners. Mm. Yeah, well, that, it, certainly the podcast will continue to be just as, in speech marks, rude. I'm not sure <laughs> what they're going to do about what goes on Radio 4. It's going on at 11 o'clock at night. So I think even Radio 4 can be a bit frisky at that time, can't it? So. Well, speaking of frisky, also with us, Deadline Magazine's international editor, Jake Cantor. Hi, Jake. Hi, hi. I could You've listen to that there. for hours, by the way. I'm not sure, I'm not sure why I'm <laughs> needed on this podcast. <laughs> That's our new show, Woman's Hour Hour, in which we discuss the machinations of Woman's Hour. I've spotted that you have been reporting on the government's production restart scheme, which sounds like the kind of thing our audience might be interested to know about. Can you tell us what it is and who it's for? Uh, yeah, I'm sure they would be interested. I mean, it's a, it's actually a really good bit of news for the industry. The government has set up a £500 million fund which is basically an emergency backstop if you uh, need to make an insurance claim uh, in the in the case that your production shuts down, basically. So if you're working on a big glossy drama like Call the Midwife, which is currently in production for BBC, um, and you have an outbreak of coronavirus, which forces you to apply the brakes, um, which inevitably then raises costs, you can uh, make a claim to the government to get that money reimbursed. And what's your sense of the state of play at the moment in terms of those big productions that are currently filming? Are they up and running again properly or is it a bit of a daily battle to keep them on the road? I think we are in a place now where I'd say anywhere between sort of 70 to 90% of production is back up and running in the UK. And that includes major drama uh, and big, big factual projects as well. I think it's difficult. I mean, clearly... All producers are working with um, extreme safety protocols, which have been very carefully uh, planned out by numerous industry bodies and by individual companies as well. Um, so there's sort of layers and layers of protocols that they're all using. I think what we're going to see more of is pauses. Um, so there may be a situation where you have uh, one person who's displaying coronavirus symptoms, uh, and then that forces the whole production to go on hiatus. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of that. I mean, we, we've seen it this week, indeed, with Jurassic World Dominion, which is uh, the big new Jurassic World franchise feature, which is yeah, but which not is every pausing for two know, weeks. British TV production can match the budget of that, can it? I mean, that's the thing. You know, a no. two-week pause, as you put it, is no. thousands and thousands of pounds, isn't no, it? No, we don't all have Universal's budget, but that's why partly why this government scheme is in place. All right, and finally joining us as well, uh, print journalist Elizabeth Carr Ellis returns to the show. Hello, Lizzie. Hello. Hi. Uh, you're currently working at Hello Magazine, which. Um, which celebrities are attracting your audience's attention at the moment? And I wonder whether the answer to that has changed during the pandemic. Um, Kate is, as ever, doing her bit for us. Um, the Duchess of Cambridge never fails to supply a beautiful front page. And of course, we're looking forward to the run up to Strictly. We have some interesting faces on there and the countdown is on. And you're also a campaigner for menopause support, aren't you? And World Menopause Day is just around the corner. How far in advance... Do you have to have all those hashtags in a row? 
I have my hashtags on speed dial constantly anyway. Um, we have started a countdown to World Menopause Day that we started at the beginning of September. So we've been doing interviews, videos, webinars, um, weekly to begin with. And then in October, we did every day. So we've been planning this since August. So it's been a, a lot so of So two months, work. basically. Yeah. And then so, so you're looking at content, I guess, that outlasts the day, but it's all about using that hashtag to launch it. Yeah, I mean, we have our own hashtag, hashtag know your menopause. And um, we've been interviewing people about mental health, uh, about HRT, getting experiences from people such as Carolyn Harris, the MP, um, Meg Matthews. So their content that's going to stay up on YouTube and people can go back and hopefully get help and support when they need it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right, let's uh, start with the proper news now. And the first TV news channel to launch in the UK for almost 20 years. Uh, Jake, tell us about GB News. Well, I mean, they kind of announced themselves to the world earlier this month, I think it was, um, with the hiring of Andrew Neil from the BBC. He's, uh, I mean, he's clearly a, a big name and he will serve both as chairman and present, I think, his own show um, in the evenings uh, on air. The, the, the way it's been characterised is a, is a right-leaning uh, news channel, but... Uh, I think characterizations that it's going to be compared to sort of Fox News are uh, somewhat wider than Mark for a number of reasons. I think that's kind of for the birds because, you know, you're still bound by strict impartiality rules here in the UK. They've hired a long time Sky News executive in John, McGan- John McAndrew to, to run the station, uh, who's got a very uh, good record and is an extremely credible news executive. Um, they're, they're majority backed by Discovery at the moment. Uh, Discovery is a very straight laced. Uh, US corporation um, doesn't tend to muddy its waters with um, 
uh, sort of spiky political discourse. No, but there is, isn't there, uh, Jane, Channel 4 News, for example, which operates, you know, under impartiality guidelines, but clearly does have a left of centre perspective. So the argument is there's room for a right of centre version of that. I think Channel 4 would probably argue against that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they would, wouldn't they? They, they wouldn't. I, although I totally see where you're coming from. And I may be just about to out myself as someone who watches Channel 4 News. So I've got to be very careful here. Um, but actually, I should say Channel 4 News is just whatever you think of its politics or not. It's just a very good news programme. I think it. I love the kind of fluency and the fluidity of Channel 4 News versus the quite static offerings sometimes presented by the BBC. Um, I've got to say, um, Discovery, Jake's absolutely right. I, I must confess, I, I, I didn't know until today that Discovery were the main backer of this station. So I think that probably does make me feel that I might give it a whirl. Um, and wh- why not watch it? What would be, having said that, what would be a good audience for Sky News these days? What kind of audience do they get? Well, it's in the tens of thousands generally, isn't it? But what they're looking for, I think, in this case is the advertising that's more specifically targeted at, I guess, the kind of people who buy The Spectator, Lizzie. And the comparison that I've seen is with LBC's audience. And what they're basically saying is we can do what LBC do. We can have personality-led news debate and we can fund it through advertising. And it's a similar sort of audience. But the thing about LBC is that 80% of the content is callers and they're free. <laughs> hundreds of journalists ain't free. So do you think it can subsist on advertising? I think it can. I think it will be quite popular, actually. I mean, Andrew Neil is a very well-respected political interviewer, no matter what you think about his politics. Um, and he does draw names in. And I think there's a huge thirst out there for something new, something different. That isn't just politics daily and the usual, as Jane says, very staid, very boring BBC news Sky News itself is very formatted, very samey every day. So I think there's a difference. Yeah, I think the uh, advertisers could be there. I mean, do you think the BBC dropped the ball, Jane, on letting Andrew Neil go? Because that's kind of how he presented it when he stepped down, wasn't it? Well, it's it's how he presented it. He's he's quite a clever operator, uh, should we say. So I, I'm quite interested in the gendered idea of a lot of people thought Jenny Murray was, quotes, retiring. Um, there was never a suggestion that the great Andrew Neil should be retiring, although he is, of course, <laughs> he is older than Jenny, um, who is emphatically not retiring. And um, I do think that is interesting. He is a, look, I mean, he's a brilliant interviewer. Um, I also think that he, as a male interviewer, you see, I haven't quite thrown off the shackles of Woman's Hour yet. I can't quite let it go. He is allowed to be. So people might have a go at Emma Barnett, in fact, for really getting to politicians and really never letting them off the hook. And they would cut more slack to a male interrogator along the lines of Andrew Neil, not taking anything away from him at all. He's clearly incredibly gifted and, I should say, incredibly well briefed by his wonderful production team, um, lest we forget. Um, and I would I would watch him, but would I make a point of going over to this TV channel for Andrew Neil? They'll have to have a bit more than that to tempt me over, but I'll definitely give it a whirl. I love LBC as well. And one of the reasons I like LBC is because I often don't agree with the take of some of its major presenters, but it doesn't stop me listening. But again, on LBC, Jake, the callers then call in and disagree with you. And that's how they framed it, even when they had Nigel Farage. You know, people call up and disagree. So actually, again, 80% of the output is people saying, no, you're wrong. If there isn't that, if it's just an invective, can it dart around Ofcom's impartiality rules? Well, I mean, I'm no, I'm no whiz on the uh, 
finer details of the Ofcom in part. You're the closest we got. <laughs> yeah, you oh, really no, are, Jake. They have, they'll, they'll have to. They'll have to be careful. And I think the the caliber of executive uh, in John McAndrew that they've got coming in to run the station suggests that they're going to be responsible and take those Ofcom guidelines seriously. I think clearly they see a, a gap in the UK market for a sort of pugnacious presenter-driven, personality-driven um, form of news. And I think anything that adds to the plurality of British news and opens up new jobs, particularly at this time, has got to be welcomed. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Andrew Neil as well. And actually, in fairness, I don't think he ever really betrayed his political allegiance in his TV presenting. But I just wonder, Lizzie, in retrospect, now he's leaving the BBC, whether it was a bit of a weird situation that he was allowed to continue chairing The Spectator whilst being the BBC's flagship political interviewer at election time. That doesn't seem like a situation that would be allowed to happen again. I don't think it would, but I don't think it ever, ever interfered. And Andrew Neil, I used to work for Andrew Neil um, when I was at The Scotsman. He was my big boss. And he has a very light touch with his editorial team because the editorial team knew what he wanted so much. So I can't see there ever being... He would never allow that to get in the way of getting a really good report through or a really good interview through. And I think that is, that's what's so good about him. But I, I don't know, I guess what I'm getting at, Jane, is maybe it's social media, but times feel like they've changed now. It feels like if you can see what someone really thinks on their social media platform, they can't be neutral when they're front and centre. No, um, I think a lot of us at the BBC were a little puzzled by how Andrew Neil was allowed to get away with being Andrew Neil on Twitter. Um, whereas I would not be allowed to get away with behaving in that manner should I choose to on social media. And I, I think there'd be a lot of other people at the BBC who would also be castigated were we to conduct our social media business in the way that he conducted his occasionally, which isn't to say he's not a very um, well-informed and erudite guy. And I should also say that I know people who've worked very closely with him and he's he's very popular um, with people who have worked with him. He seems to be a decent person to work alongside. And, you know, you, let's be honest, you don't hear that all the time in the media. So when you do hear it, you you remember when someone has said, oh, actually, he was a nice guy to be with and work with. So if that's worth anything, let's let, let's get it out there. He actually did the best thing I've ever seen happen at a live corporate event as well. Both he and I were booked for the same corporate thing that no one turned up to. <laughs> and that was his warm-up act, effectively. And I addressed the empty room because that's what I'd been paid to do and didn't say anything and just behaved as if there were people there when like, there was nobody there. There were like 20 people there and there should have been a thousand people there. And he just came on stage and said, this is pointless, isn't it? Let's go to the bar and just bought everyone a drink and did an informal Q&A. And it was just a much classier way to deal with it. Well, you see, there you go. That doesn't surprise me, that story about him from what I know about him. Um, apart from him, though, who else have they got? Is is Nigel going to do a show, Nigel Farage? It's all under wraps at the moment, isn't it, Jake? I haven't okay. heard any gossip yet. I, d- I don't know is the honest answer. I mean, they, they haven't announced any other programming um, beyond, beyond Andrew. Let's stick with uh, telly for a moment here because um, Culture Minister John Whittingdale appeared to suggest that the government could sell off Channel 4 in a speech he gave... Uh, in a fringe session at the Tory party conference this week. Uh, Lizzie, fill us in on what he said. He basically, well, this is a very common theme for John Whittingdale. He says Channel 4 was struggling financially and there was a chance it could be privatised, which is, as I said, a theme he's very fond of. See, he did the same sort of thing about four years ago, three, four years ago. Um He doesn't seem to like Channel 4. Well, is it a question of not liking it to say that it should 
in these days function without the government needing to support it if it's so agile it can it can manage without it being a public service in that sense you know it's from another era i guess that's the argument isn't it yeah it serves a very unique purpose in the broadcasting landscape here in the uk um because of its public ownership um Channel 4 has the ability to innovate technically with its programming. I mean, some would argue that it's perhaps not not, to, not as innovative as it should be at the moment. Uh, and the other big thing that Channel 4 does is uh, it reinvests all of its revenue into the UK production sector. And the fear in the industry is that if you privatise Channel 4 and it falls into commercial hands, that those priorities slip down the agenda and um, it's less innovative and the temptation may well be to set up an in-house production arm, which we see uh, most major broadcasters have at the moment, including ITV Studios, um, which, um, you know, if you look at ITV, it's been able to weather the advertising downturn because it has an in-house in-house commercial uh, production arm. Uh, and the fear is that Channel 4 could go the same way. And Alex Mann basically brushed this off, though, didn't she? She sort of said, essentially, Channel 4 is really agile anyway, and we, if, if necessary, we don't really need um external money to survive because we haven't been taking direct funding from the government during coronavirus we were able to cut our costs because we don't have in-house production so what are you talking about yeah i mean alex Mann tends to deal with these things fairly coolly um she did brush it off she said we're not you know the, the question about privatization is not one that unduly worries me those were her words um but i can I can guarantee you that behind the scenes, Channel 4 will be doing a lot of work to make sure the government knows that privatisation is not the right route for, for, the, for the company. Uh, Jane, your new boss, Tim Davey, was also part of uh, Ofcom's virtual conference this week. And I don't know if you saw he t- turned up wearing a box fresh pair of Adidas's. And uh, did you hear what he had to say about the recruitment process at the Beeb? Well, um, yes. I mean, it's potentially good news for me. Uh, BA honours brackets uh, Birmingham, or however you um, however you phrase it. So, um, I do have a story. This is Tim Davy said. Basically, the BBC needs to stop recruiting the same sort of folk. In other words, privately educated, and often uh, going to Oxford and Cambridge, and then almost inevitably ending up at the BBC, it would seem, with a uh, 2-1 in English or whatever it might be. And um, I mean, he, when I, I remember going to my careers teacher at school and saying I wanted to work for the BBC. And um, she's one of those fantastic women who'd gone into teaching purely because she particularly, she had a real dislike for children, which is why she'd chosen it um, as, as her career. And she just took one look at me and said, well... <laughs> You know, you won't be working for the BBC because you will not be going to Oxford or Cambridge. And um, and actually, she was sort of, without me, I think in retrospect, she was more right than she realised. Um, she can't possibly have known that, I think, I can't possibly, she can't possibly have known much about working for the BBC. Um, but she was sort of right. And I... I'm quite unusual, I think, in in not having been to Oxford or Cambridge. I mean, it's well, not... Well, except, I mean, if you look at the statistics that are published on this, and the last ones, yeah. I think, did expire in 2010, but you're talking at about 6% of the BBC's intake being Oxbridge educated. Okay, that doesn't well, seem that I'm, dramatic. I'm perhaps thinking of Radio 4 presenters. Um, and to be fair, actually, Jenny Murray didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge either. Emma Barnett didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. So... Um, of course, there are loads of, of us who didn't go, but I did once get taken out by a 
boss of mine at Radio 4 some years ago, hedging my bets a bit here, um, and over lunch, he said to me, it was a man, which college did you go to? <laughs> and I said, um, oh, um, I, I, no, I, I didn't go to college. I, I went to university. And at that point, his face fell about, I don't know, 15 feet or something. And he said, oh, oh, so you didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge? And I said, no, no, I, I went to Birmingham. Well, nowadays, of course, we have Wikipedia, so I can make sure what college someone went to before I have that discussion with them. It could be very embarrassing. But um, he did say, he did say really quickly, oh, well, I suppose at least it's a Russell group. <laughs> um, and everyone I mean, the, knows that the Russell group is just nonsense. It's just a nonsense thing that they, they use. And I, you know, it, it, that shouldn't have, of course, he shouldn't have said that. And of course, there should be diversity in employment. And that's what every media company is looking to. And the BBC has to absolutely set the path for that, Lizzie. But it's funny, isn't it? Because if you were running a small business, you'd be thrilled if loads of Oxbridge graduates wanted to come and work for you because it's a shortcut to mean they're all really clever. And actually, what the BBC is basically saying is, look, you quantifiably intelligent people, don't come knocking on our door. (laughs) (laughs) As um, somebody who had no chance of getting into Oxbridge, I would very much hold a claim with that. They're very clever. I think that a lot of them are just very rich and have very rich tutors when they're children and that's how a lot of them get into Oxbridge although my brother did go to Cambridge and let's say the system works and by the end of it they're clever enough to do the job though I mean it's still shorthand for this person not a complete functioning idiot surely but then you're cutting it all off to people who just can't go to Oxbridge because of financial reasons for example or who are just never going to get a chance to get their foot through the door at Oxbridge I mean I applied for a job at the BBC and yeah didn't have a chance basically um and it went to a white man. Surprise, surprise. So I think when they talk about diversity, I find this quite hilarious considering the last time I was on the show, we were talking about job cuts to the regions. So they want diversity, but they want diversity in London. They don't want proper diversity, which is spreading out across the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, diversity is one of those words, Jake, that does kind of get interpreted these days mostly to mean about BAME voices and representation. But actually, yeah, it's across sexuality, it's across uh, religion, it's across age, and it's across regionality as well as social mobility. There's a lot to talk about, and some of it gets minimised sometimes. And disability, I would say. And disability, Uh, there's another one, absolutely. Um, I mean, to be fair to Tim Davey, I I don't think he was intending for his comments to be specifically about Oxford and Cambridge. I think that's the way it's been framed by the newspaper reports on his comments. Uh, He was talking quite broadly about uh, the BBC reflecting, you know, socioeconomic diversity. Yeah, and that covers, you know, a whole range of different people and voices. And um, as part of that, he said, we don't want people from certain, you know, academic tracks and, you know, Obviously, the way that's been portrayed is a, as a as an Oxbridge debate. I think you know this goes to the core of um, the entire broadcasting industry at the moment. There needs to be greater diversity. Um, we've just had the Edinburgh Television Festival last uh, last month. I say last month; it was two months ago, nearly, <laughs> nearly now, where diversity was at the heart of everything that was talked about. And um, it's not just about bringing in voices is making sure that those voices are, uh, are are being involved in decision making and that's that's the key for the BBC um i think the BBC needs to be thinking about where it can hire controllers of radio stations and tv channels that are from different backgrounds 
Uh, and they they are the ones who will bring in the new and fresh voices. And let's talk now about who's going to become the new chair of the BBC. Uh, sorry, Jane, to torturously put you through all these stories about your employer. Uh, the Sunday Times said that the Prime Minister wanted Charles Moore, uh, who has ruled himself out now. Uh, the Telegraph is reporting Robbie Gibb, ex-head of the BBC's political programming and advisor to Theresa May, as the new front runner. Uh, Jane, how much power do you think the chair of the BBC actually has anyway? Well, isn't it a bit of a curious one? Because we've just got a new director general. So they won't, it won't be in their gift to appoint a new director general for quite a while, will it? So, And also, if you asked an average member of the BBC staff, who is the chairperson of the BBC? Who is the chair of the BBC? Honestly, would anyone... I can just about remember the name of the last guy. David uh, Clementi. Clementi. I'm glad you said David because I could only remember the surname. So you gave me the first name between us. We got it. I can't picture him. Uh, I'm not sure I ever heard him speak. Certainly never met him. I think they work three or four days a week, don't they, these people? Um, I I actually, the idea of Charles Moore is surely that classic, let's float a name that certainly won't be the person who gets the job, but will mean whoever gets the job will be significantly less horrifying to some individuals involved. <laughs> um, it's sure, surely it is that. And the same with Paul Dacre. I can't, it's, a, it's, it's just a, let's so chuck We'll get, we'll get on to him in a minute. So he's the suggested head for Ofcom, which really right. has struck yeah. terror well, into I, many people. But I do think it's the same thing. I think that's exactly what they're doing. It's just throwing raw meat out there and everybody goes, oh my God. And then it, of course it doesn't happen. Well, the power they have, Jake, is, to, is during the licence fee negotiations, isn't it? They're there. And we're obviously going to have a Conservative government at that point. So that's why these kinds of names are being floated. That's why it's important. Um, I mean, what do you reckon? Uh, well, we were told it was a done deal by the Sunday Times that uh, Charles, Moore, Charles Moore would be installed. Maybe he took a look at the the salary and bulked somewhat. I mean, he, you know, David Clementi earns about 100k. I think we're told that... Um, that Charles Moore owns maybe three times that the Telegraph for his uh, his column, uh, so maybe that was a factor in him uh, in deciding that it wasn't right for him, or maybe as Jane says, this was all just diversionary tactics by the government. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's a few issues that the government probably wouldn't want us talking about right now, and the media can quite happily consume itself with conversations about Paul, yeah. <laughs> about Charles Moore and Paul Dacre. Um, I mean, I think. <laughs> Yes, the, the, the chair is uh, absolutely pivotal in holding the BBC to account and will be a hugely important player uh, when it comes to some uh, conversations about the future of the licence fee, which we're going to have very shortly. Um, do I think it's a terrible idea that we have a BBC critic as, as, as the chair of the corporation? No, I don't actually. But I think probably it's a step too far for that critic to be an active avoider of the licence fee, which is what Charles I just say, I do agree with that. And I think it, only in our world would it be even faintly possible for someone who had actively boasted about not paying the licence fee to be considered for that role. And also, he hasn't he also just said, I just don't know anything about technology? He has. Um, yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, an avowed Luddite, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, it it doesn't seem very twenty first century to me. And Lizzie, you told us that you'd worked for Andrew Neil earlier. Have you ever worked for Paul Dacre? I'm guessing you at least know lots of people who have. What do you make of him being head of Ofcom? Um, it's a difficult one. I mean, he he's known for his strident views. Um, he has attacked the BBC quite a bit, but he's also said, to quote Boris Johnson's words, he'd die in a ditch for the BBC. Um. 
It's a difficult one with Ofcom because there are so many rules and regulations that would govern him. So how much would he actually get a say about it? There are so many regulations and committees that he would have to go through that. I think a man like that is used to being in charge and having to follow the committees. He doesn't seem that sort of man. And I did actually turn the Daily Mail down for a job. On what basis? Um, I was a step down. I was night editor at the time and they wanted me to be night editor, but it was only one night a week rather than all week. Well, talking about uh, old fashioned Fleet Street now, there are some new allegations, but they're very old stories about what happened at Mirror Group. Lizzie, can you tell us what the allegations are? Um, the allegations are that several journalists from the Mirror targeted judges during the whole phone hacking crisis, I suppose is the word to use. And does that and does that surprise you? I mean, does anything surprise you about phone hacking anymore? I mean, it's one thing, isn't it, to go after a sort of tabloid starlet. This is actually going after the judiciary. Well, as soon as I heard it, my mind went back to Peter Jukes' podcast Untold about the Daniel Morgan murder, where he goes into the dark hearts of the tabloids, as he calls it. And so I just thought, yeah, I can see it. Do you think they reflect anything about the current state of tabloid journalism, these kind of allegations? Because as I say, it's an old story now. I mean, the news of the world closed nearly 10 years ago. I think that style of journalism has gone. And I mean, I've talked to people who were on those newspapers at the time, and they honestly didn't know a thing about it. So it was a minority of a minority when it comes to the whole media. It's just a pity that the repercussions are so big. And I think most people who have read that story now will just go, yeah, well, media are scum, aren't they? So I'm not surprised about this. And that is a direct, in my opinion, that is a direct hit from the phone hacking. Um, Jake, you've worked in lots of newsrooms. Has anyone ever offered to tell you how to hack someone's phone? Uh, no, never. <laughs> I'm, and I'm very grateful for that fact. Um, the the claimants who include the likes of John Leslie and Martin McCutcheon, they're, they're trying to widen their argument to target Piers Morgan, aren't they? Yes. Um, they're, they're, they're... Whose name keeps coming up and has kept coming up for 10 years because he quite openly has said in a book that he published that he knew about phone hacking. And there was that anecdote that Jeremy Paxman said at the Leveson inquiry that Piers Morgan had offered to show him how to hack a phone over dinner. And yet somehow he has escaped being personally involved in these lawsuits. I mean, he's kept his nose very clean, hasn't he, really? I think in the, in the sort of in the court of public opinion, at the very least. Um, and, you know, has rejuvenated himself as the you know, face of Good Morning Britain and, you know, the crusader against the government on coronavirus. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see if he gets dragged into this further in the future. I do think it's interesting that on the whole, the Daily Mirror has escaped public um, censure for for this. I mean, most people, let's face it, haven't got time to immerse themselves in the trivialities of what's going in the world, going on in the world of media. I know we all have, but um, most people haven't. And if you were to ask most people, they would they would talk about other newspapers and not that one. But it would seem, based on everything you you said, Ollie, that indeed, and stuff I've read in the past, and indeed, indeed I've read Piers Morgan's diaries. Um, that absolutely they were doing it. Well, we know they were because they've paid they've paid money to people out of court settlements along with the other groups, haven't they? Yeah, and in the court of public opinion, Lizzie, it's strange, isn't it? Like Murdoch shut the news of the world really to protect the sun, but he sort of ended up protecting the mirror. It's true, yeah. And I think um, Piers Morgan has such a bolshie attitude. And in his diaries, there are very often occasions where he's very wise after the fact, and then somehow it becomes he knew it first in his diaries. For example, he used axis of evil long time before anybody else. 
that I think people sort of go, hmm, not quite sure. And so that's how he gets away with it. But yeah, the mirror gets away. Although on Twitter, he does quite often get accusations of phone hacking, but because they tend to accuse him of doing stories that the Sun did, he can deny them. Sticking with print journalism, there's this link now between voter turnout and the local circulation of newspapers, which has been revealed in a new study. Uh, Lizzie, did you see this report commissioned by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport? I did, yeah. And it was really interesting. I am a huge, huge fan, as I said last time, of regional media. I think its demise is a huge problem for democracy in this country. So yeah, I think this report just shows it. The report basically says that the bigger the print circulation of a newspaper, the more voter turnout is. And as soon as newspapers start going down or they don't cover the local news in as much detail, voter turnout falls. And as I said, I'm a huge fan of regional media. They play such an important part. They're a way of keeping the local politicians held to account. So obviously, if people aren't seeing that, then they get disaffected, they get disinterested, and they turn away from politics and they think, what's the point of voting? Because it doesn't affect me anyway. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I also think, by the way, that the BBC really does need to properly invest in local radio for all the same same reasons, actually. Um, and not just because I worked in local radio and loved it, but I love local newspapers too. And also at the moment, um, coronavirus is actually, it's a local story as much as anything. Um, you know, restrictions are different depending on where you are in the country. I would argue that now there's never been a better time to have a really decent local newspaper. Um, and so many people are deprived of that. And I think it's a real, real shame. Except at election time, we're increasingly being persuaded with the prime ministerial TV debates and with social media campaigns based around issues to vote for parties and almost premiers rather than local politicians these days. And this this survey seems to suggest that actually at grassroots, people still do want to know more about the person who's representing them in their constituency. Because that person is supposed to be their voice. So if they don't have that face, they don't have that figurehead, then they don't have that voice. Boris Johnson is never going to be the voice of the Red Wall. They want that local MP to do it. And when they all voted Tory, that was a direct turn against the local Labour MP. It wasn't a vote against Jordan. What about council elections? And, um, you know, ultimately, um, well, there's the, the possibility now that local councils could be up to all sorts of stuff. We know that small scale corruption is probably going on in all kinds of places in Britain right now because there's no one to watch over them and no one to hold them to account. I think that's bloody awful. And actually, when you do get that story, you know, even if you're just a blogger or a podcaster or whoever, if there isn't the local media, the um, pressure is to try and make it an international story, you know, make it as sensational as possible to get people involved. And that's not necessarily representing your local constituents' interests either. The trouble also is that so many local newspapers now are covering huge regions. So you might have a very interesting story, but because it only affects a small part of that readership, it's going to have to really fight to get on the news list because the newspaper has to appeal to so many. For example, BBC Look North now covers all of Cumbria. When I'm back home in Newcastle, I don't really give it. Sorry, Cumbria, but I don't care what's happening over there. I need to know what's happening in my own region. Cumbria is where I go for a holiday. It's not where I want to hear what's happening in the local newspapers or the local industry. Well, as far as I can gather, you're all locked in your homes, like wherever you are, Lizzie. So uh, (laughs) that appears to be the headline that we're getting down south. Um, I mean, Jake, when it comes to local news, though, what are the solutions to this? Um, Because the government has now rejected 
a recommendation to create an institute for public interest news, which was part of the proposals in the Cairn Cross Review last year. There's a lot of criticism of whether it's really feasible to get the likes of Facebook and Google to pay for proper local news. So no one's really got a workable solution to this, have they? Everyone says it's important, but no one's really doing anything. No, I think that was actually one of the most painful things about reading that report, is there's no easy answers. You know, we've seen other countries try different things. You know, there was financial support in Austria, tax, tax credits in Canada. Uh, there was uh, vast and complex aid in France. That's how it was characterised. But we're not really clear on what the benefits of those interventions were, even if they were welcomed by the industry. So it's clearly the muddies, the waters are quite muddy on this issue and, and, and the solutions are not obvious. I think what Jane said is absolutely right. I mean, the BBC has a huge role to play. Uh, I think local radio in particular is something the BBC should be investing more money in, uh, particularly at a time when the narrative and the BBC, around the BBC and sort of local and regional output is one of retreat. Um, you know, it's cutting uh, major shows like Inside Out. And um, I don't think that's a particularly helpful thing at this time. Um, but yeah, if it, if it was up to me, I'd be getting Facebook and Google to be paying more for local press. I know that's not a simple solution, but they've got the money, they've got the power. It's where people are consuming their news. Um, they they should be um, putting effort into supporting local press. And actually, I mean, I was being glib about everyone being locked in their homes. Well, at I was moment, just about actually, to say, local, we're all bloody local because we can't go anywhere. <laughs> that's right. And that's that's obviously been a boost when they're allowed to open to local cafes, for example, who previously were losing commuters, you know, who were heading off to Starbucks in London and Manchester. Maybe that could be a boost for local news media because you want to know what's going on in your area. Yeah, I might start, a, come January, I'll start a radio station in my street just for the street. And, and you would get an exclusive by the end of the show of what your yeah, show was going to be. I'll just get a megaphone and just ball out of my bedroom window and um, let them know Jane, what's going on. Jen Garvey talks to the neighbours I would listen to. <laughs> they wouldn't, but yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, the good news is there is just time to squeeze in our legendary media quiz. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex have denied reports that they're doing a reality show for Netflix after signing a deal with the streaming service. So I am going to ask you four questions about the Sussex-Netflix deal. All you have to do is give me the correct answer before anyone else. So you buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Jake, you will say... Jake. Lizzie, you will say... Lizzie. And can I say it's not fair that I've got two syllables and everybody else has just got one? You can say Liz if you like. We'll go for it. Deal. And Jane, you will say... Well, Jane, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Question one. How much is the deal between Harry, Meghan and Netflix rumoured to be worth? Jane. 40 million. Let's see if anyone can get closer. I think it's $100 million. That's what the rumour is. $150 million. Uh, Jake Jake was actually bang on, I'm afraid. Point goes to Jake. It is £100 million, according to Sky News. Question two. The royal couple have already got two projects in development with Netflix, but what are they? Liz? A nature documentary and an animation series that celebrates women. An innovative nature docu-series and an animated series that celebrates inspiring women. I will give you the point, Liz. Yes. And, that, and that's worth £100 million. Obviously. Here's question number three. Earlier this year, Megan narrated a documentary film for Disney+. Plus. But what was it called? Liz. Wow, you buzzed in before I even got to the question. You're really keen. How can, <laughs> how can you tell which magazine I work for? Um, it was <laughs> Elephant. It was Elephant, yes. A natural history film following an elephant family on their journey across Africa. Uh, and question number four. I'd say it's all to play for, but Liz already has two points. <laughs> 
the real royal family of reality TV, the Kardashians, announced that their show will end next year. But how long has it been on the air? How long has the Kardashians been on the air? Uh, Jane. Jane. Uh, I'm just trying to get some pride. Um, eight years. You're way off. Liz? Fifteen. Closer. Yeah, I mean, I would have said fifteen as well, to be honest. So. Okay. Well, it's fourteen. Fourteen years on the air. Extraordinary. Lizzie, you have won the quiz. I'm overjoyed after the terrible showing last time. I have pride back. The, the prize is as many copies of the Daily Mail as you'd like me to post. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that is it for today. My thanks to our guests, Elizabeth Carellis, Jane Carvey and Jake Cantor. Uh, if you like what we're up to here on The Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. Uh, if you make a donation, even a small one, you could have a future episode dedicated to you. Uh, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, St. Catherine's College, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.